Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for Wednesday the 27th of January and joining me on this edition are audio reviewer Ed Selly. I'm telling mummy. News editor Mark Hodgkinson. You're like a pit bull with that pink thing hanging out. And assistant editor Steve Withers. Yeah exactly a pool man it's like a big ass puddle wrapped in blue plastic. Hello welcome back to the podcast it is the last one in January 2016. It's almost February, which means TV launches coming very soon. And um, our first one's next week, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, it is, yeah Sony, uh, next Tuesday. So unfortunately, too late for the, unless we do a late podcast recording, I'll miss it. But we'll be talking about it, obviously, on the, well, there'll be a piece on the uh, on the forums itself, and we can talk about it the week after. But yeah, the first, uh, first TV manufacturer out of the gates will be um, Sony with their press launch next Tuesday. Okay, exciting stuff. So it'll be the following podcast before we discuss that. There will be a video and there will be an article for that. So, um, yeah, they're first out of the gates. Uh, followed a couple of weeks later by TP Vision, I understand. Is that right? Yep, TP Vision are two weeks after that. Um, they're showing off their new wares in uh, in Brussels, of all places. And then, um, obviously, at the end of the month, we've got Panasonic. And at some point in February, we will also have LG and Samsung. But I don't know exactly when yet. We might have them. I don't I think should, it's any coincidence. Think. Sorry, I don't think it's any coincidence. Philips and Sony have uh, come out first after last year. Uh, yeah, <laughs> being, held, being held up with Android. I think this decided, yeah, well, I mean, definitely uh, a well, policy decision. TP Vision, Philips have still got last year's models to, yeah. to launch. That's true. <laughs> I do. I, I I really feel sorry for them because they had some really great yeah. teddies last year yeah. that never saw the light of day. Well, you know, I feel sorry for them, but at the same time, I think they made the right move in not launching the TVs when the platform wasn't ready to go because I think they've saved themselves major headache there, which. If you look at what happened with Sony, with them launching the product when it wasn't ready, uh, with Android not ready and all the rest, it it kind of backfired on them. And um, you know the reviews basically pointed that out. Not only yeah. our reviews, but every other review uh, pointed out that the TV and that must have hurt them sales wise last year. So uh, yeah, uh, yet yeah, they're running late. Um, they're going to obviously change the model numbers for this year and update the sets where they can. But um, you got to hand it to them. They, they, they were brave not launching the TVs, but I think they made the right move in not launching them and causing a whole load of issues, which would backfire. And, um, you know, you don't want that sour taste left with customers because they don't come back to your brand, no matter how much they love the brand. If you don't do think anything wrong, they won't come back to you. Yeah, it'll so be interesting to see how much um, blowback there is on um, Sony for um, a, a, basically releasing TVs with a smart platform that was unusable at times. Uh, but we have to point out it's now fixed and working the way <laughs> it should be, just to clarify and make sure. Right, anyway, before we get ourselves in any trouble, uh, current competitions, we've got Rocky on Blu-ray. It's open to all members, closes on the 15th of February, and uh, The Boys from Brazil on Blu-ray is open to active members, and that's open until the 22nd of February. And previous competition winners, Gary Britton won a copy of, what's it called, Mark? Torah, Torah. Tora. And uh, well, it's about Mark. The Spanish Air Force dropping balls on Hawaii. <laughs> Exploding balls. Oh, it still gives me giggles. Anyway, uh, Gary Britton, well done. Uh, you won a copy of that on Blu ray. Congratulations. Right, let's move on. Um, it's got here my first thoughts of the Yamaha CX A5100 AV processor and MXA5000 power amp. Yes, I do have them. However, it's taken me a little bit longer than I thought to um, get the room up and running. To do these things justice, I've also emptied uh, Richard Sound's stock of JBL controls ones in the northeast. You cannot get any till this Friday because I bought the last the last oh. two pairs. <laughs> and I have to say, uh, after uh, the gaffer tape is now gone, uh, I managed to to get up there and and tack the cable in correctly for the ceiling speakers. And I've put two rear speakers up as well and correctly tacked the cables in for that. And then run all the cables and then. Did loads. Of, I had to film the unboxing videos, so I've done all that. And um, unboxing of a control one. <laughs> no, not of the control ones. Of the <laughs> Yamaha kit. Um, I think we know what a control one looks like. Yes, yeah, so I, I did the unboxing videos for the processor and the power amp as well. So I only really got it wired up last thing yesterday, which we're recording this Monday, so that was Sunday. Um, spent all week uh, weekend on this stuff. Finally got to listen, and uh, when I was running uh, the test, basically what I did was I went through. Sound meter first, did everything at 75 dB, check all the channels were right, running the way they should be, 
I then run the auto EQ, which is YAPO. Is that correct? Is that YPAO? YPAO. There. I always get it the wrong way around. Anyway, I run that and uh, sent out speakers were out of phase and they weren't out of phase because I'd swapped them over and it was still saying it was out of phase. And anyway, I got to the bottom of all those issues and then finally uh, run the the Dolby Atmos um, demo disc just to play some trailers that I, I, I know quite well. Uh, Gotta say, after all that hard work, I felt a little bit disappointed with the sound quality. Don't get me wrong, it sounds good. It's just the amount of work put in to get to this <laughs> point <laughs> um, kind of outweighs the end result, if you know what I mean, because it's not, as Ed would say, it's not blowing my frock up. Fair enough, I haven't watched any movies yet. And the other thing is that the Yamaha models, um, you know, fantastically well built, put together, uh, they sound great. But the menu system and the way that you set the thing up is not intuitive at all. And, and yeah, I mean, I think from my experience of Yamahas um, to date, they're beautifully made, nice design, uh, really solid, great sounding. But the one area I think they do fall down on is their menu system and setup procedures are, are which, really, which is really a shame. difficult to follow. Which is a shame because I, I remember back to my, um, well, I used to have the, the DSPA1 was the first Yamaha I ever owned, AVR. I don't know if you remember that one. That's going back to sort of yeah, yeah, mid, it was a beast. Mid, that was a real beast. Um, and then I went for the was it the A thirty forty or the A thirty ten? I can't quite remember. It was the first AC three um, processor on the market. First one ever. And back then it, it was it was a lot better to set up. It was so much easier. When you looked in the display, it actually told you what it was decoding and all the rest. It not like the way they've designed the system this time around and. Yeah, it's it's like it's overcomplicated for what it is. I mean, the DSP stuff, set that to one side. It's like the remote control as well. There's nothing on the remote control that says that you just want plain vanilla, whatever it's decoded. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and there's thousands of little buttons. Yeah. And has yours got a backlight? Because the one I had nope. before didn't. No. Nope. So it's a two and a half grand for a processor with a remote control without a backlight. If you're paying two and a half grand for a processor, you've got a pretty serious home cinema. I'm guessing you've got a projector and it's going to be pretty dark. I haven't used the remote in years. Just well, yeah, I mean, app. just use the app. Yeah, I mean, and the, all the, the same app, controls are yes, on there. And in many I, ways, it's more logically laid out. Yes, I know, Ed, and I, you know, I do use that. But I have to say that that at that price point, I would expect a really nice. And they used to do them. You know, they used to do. I remember mine, and it had a nice cover over the front as well. And you used to get stickers in the box as well, so you could personalise which one was which and so on. And it used to do macros and all that kind of thing. And you look at the remotes now, and, and there's still lots of that. Whoop, what happened there? Uh, did we lose someone? Withers gone. Withers. <laughs> <laughs> there goes his internet. No, I, I don't... Whilst we wait to see if we can recover, Steve, from 1989, um, I don't disagree with you that at certainly at the price of the 5,000 components, yes, um it's probably the case that the remote should be better. But I just think on pattern that the use of them is becoming less and less frequent. Uh, the Essentially, I just feel that on these devices where especially um, anything which actually has a wireless aerial on it is more likely to be sat on a network, I just find it much more intuitive, not necessarily to go to the iPad app these days, but to um, go to, uh, to my my phone, I've just got an Android widget on the second page, which has just got the basic functionality that I want, and I can click through and go to the main remote if for whatever reason I need to do something more tweaky. I mean, I've got nothing against using the remote app as long as my phone's in my pocket. You know what I mean? I don't have to go searching for it through in the other room and all the rest of it. Whereas just picking up the remote control and being able to find a button very quickly rather than flicking through... Um, a number of screens on the app to find the control I want as well. You know what I mean? It's it's just, I don't know what it is, but a lot of it's muscle memory. <laughs> you know, you get used to a remote control, you get used to just picking it up and knowing exactly where your finger is going to get exactly what it is that you want to switch. I just find that much far more useful than the app, to be honest. I'm just old-fashioned that way. Even though you can do far more with, with the app. Try and get Steve back. Hello. 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 <laughs> yeah. Steve. <laughs> Uh, no. Lost my internet connection then. Yeah. Well, yeah, we kind of got that. <laughs> <laughs> so much for it being better. <laughs> Sorry about Maybe that. you get 6.8 meg, but only for a limited time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> limited <laughs> offer, right. Uh, so anyway, I'm not going to go on anymore because I really haven't had time 
other than basic setup, making sure it's on the network. Uh, so I've run Tidal through uh, Bluetooth and stuff like that and checked. Uh, uh, that, that's the thing. From the remote control, there's no way of getting um, internet radio services. You have to use the app to get the internet radio services, which I found quite unusual, unless it's a button hidden somewhere that I haven't found yet. Mm. Um, which seems quite strange. Plenty of um, buttons to choose from. <laughs> yeah, but let's move on anyway. We're going to move on and talk about things that punters are more interested in these days rather than AVRs, and it's quite depressing. And that's soundbars. A growing market, continually growing market, um, getting more advanced as well. So you've got the Dolby Atmos uh, soundbar turn out this week, Steve, but um, let's have a look at some that we've had in, uh, both yourself and Mark. Um, like I say, these things are getting a little bit more advanced as we go along, as things... Um, as people obviously ask for features and manufacturers get to understand the market a little bit better. So where are we right now at the beginning of 2016? We're kind of, we're a bit like with TVs. We are a little bit between two stalls right now. You've got, um, you've got a very big uh, selection of soundbars, which will happily, um, a lot of them have HDMI in and out, HDMI 1.4, and they'll have things like Bluetooth. A lot of them are also multi-room now. So that, that, that means, for example, I've just reviewed the Denon Heos Home Cinema. That's the name of it, by the way. It's called the Home Cinema, but it's basically a soundbar with a wireless sub. And um, that's part of Denon's Heos multi-room system. There are a lot more that, that are coming along like that. So you're getting multi-room, you're getting um, HDMI in and out. Uh, you're getting things like Bluetooth, obviously. Um, so you're getting soundbars um, and sound bases that uh, can deliver you know, decent sound for the TV. Also can be used for listening to music if you want to, or for us, for some sort of multi-room system. What we're not yet seeing so much of is passing through uh, 4K, Obviously, things like HDMI 2.0a um, is, is really not, not being covered at all with soundbars yet. But we maybe, when I get it, I'll find out the Yamaha YSP5600 will, because that one is the first soundbar um, that was announced that can do both Dolby Atmos and DTSX, um, which is going to be interesting and certainly was impressive when both Ed and I saw it at IFA. Um, so but then you have to think, well, do I penalise a soundbar for not having, say, 4K pass-through or, 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 or um, supporting these new immersive audio formats? And of course, no, because the pe- people buying a soundbar aren't necessarily going to want all that anyway. In fact, quite a lot of people just use, you know, um, the HDMI out ARC to connect to their TV and the audio, everything's going into the TV, then the audio's going back through to the soundbar and the soundbar only supports like DTS and Dolby Digital anyway, so you just don't need all that other stuff. Well, we're, um, making, we're making the assumption that people actually do do that, but mm. you know, does, does the vast majority of the, of the market even know that... They might even just use the optical digital input. Or, well, you know. yeah, if they read exactly. the manual, you'd hope they would because they really push it, don't they? they yeah, really but who, who, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, bloke, it's but blokes it that buy this, Mark, and blokes don't yeah. read the manual and they don't ask for directions. <laughs> but there are some, you know, there are some soundbars on there, Mark, that don't even have HDMI that they just yeah, yeah, they designed thing, yeah. to be used. And that's obviously, that's that's basically appealing to the different parts of the market. And that makes sense. You know, you've got your entry-level people who basically buy a TV think that doesn't sound very good because they haven't been sounding particularly good of late due to the fact they're so thin. And they buy a, a small soundbar and that gets the sound a bit better. Then they think, oh, maybe I'll get something a bit bigger with a wireless sub, for example. You know, get a bit more bit more beef to my sound. And then um, they, they realise they can use the H- an HDMI in, input and perhaps use ARC. But, you know, there are different levels of soundbar. And, and I think that that's sensible. It's basically covering the entire market from people who just want a basic soundbar to someone who wants Dolby Atmos. Although, interestingly, this um, one I've got, it's a Cambridge Audio TVB2, and it's only 300 quid, and it's got three HDMI inputs, which is unusual in itself in that kind of price category, uh, as well as as well as well an uh, output for ARC, and and it supports 4K up to 60 frames per second, I've tested, which really surprised me. It's listed as HDMI 1.4, but it'll, it'll happily receive the 4K up to 60 frames per second, no problem. It's quite, quite interesting. I was obviously standing in uh, in, in a Richer Sounds recently. A lot. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> buying a lot up, of different Richer Sounds, in fact. Buying up, well, there's only two up here, so yeah, I emptied both of their stock. But anyway, while I was standing waiting to get served, um, they were, the main demonstration room, what were they demonstrating to uh, two different sets of people? Soundbars. They weren't demonstrating 5.1 or 7.1 or even Atmos. It was soundbars, which was quite surprising. How much did you say that soundbar was, Mark? Three hundred quid. Yeah, I mean, when you get to that price point, that's that's when a soundbar makes sense. Once the soundbar starts costing, for example, the, the home cinema, the Heos home cinema, that's five nine nine. So that's really expensive for a soundbar. Not that I mean, the YSP five six hundred is I think one and a half grand or something. So that's way expensive. So when you get that kind of price point, you really start thinking, well, I could actually buy an AVR 
and a, a speaker package. I mean, unless unless but, you got a partner. So, so <laughs> yeah, it depends on whether you want the speakers around the room and that kind of stuff. But Mark, uh, not Mark, sorry, um, Ed, the uh, Tannoy system you reviewed quite recently. Um, it's a five point yeah. one system, which what was five nine nine, I think it was. Yeah, and can be available can be found for quite a bit less than that online, and it's hard hardly the most tricky trickiest thing in the world to accommodate. Um, it, it must be said that you're right. There is a, there seems to be a step point. Don't get me wrong; you need to factor in receiver costs as well. Well, you can get uh, a Denon X one thousand for about I think it's three nine nine. I think <laughs> so. You know, we wouldn't be paying too much above maybe eight no, nine hundred pounds for a I mean, obviously, system. We have tested a few whopping soundbars. I mean, you've got the YSP five six hundred coming in. I did the Focal Dimension a little bit of time ago. Mark, you did a whapping great pa- um, yeah. Paradigm one. Yeah, it was a beast. A monster. It was too those big. Are, it got those away, are very away the specialist talent. items, aren't they? I mean, they are in their own in their own way no less niche than a true AV system. Um, you've got to have quite specific requirements for them. But obviously manufacturers feel that there's a, a, a requirement for them to exist, so otherwise they wouldn't. I think a lot of manufacturers now are also pushing the concept of a uh, um, you know, immersive and uh, a more immersive sound and a, and a virtual surround experience from soundbars. And to some extent, that's true. Uh, certainly, uh, Yamaha's soundbars, the ones that use um, YSP, so sound projection, where they bounce sounds off the sidewalls. And in the case of the YSP 5600, it's going to be bouncing sounds off the ceiling as well, which is exactly how um, upward firing Atmos speakers work as well. You know, that system does create a sense of surround, but obviously, you know, it, it is an, an illusion, effectively, or it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a cheat. You're not actually having speakers, you know, there aren't speakers directly behind you or above you that are firing directly at you. So if you compare that experience to, you know, an actual 5.1 system, it will be different. But you can get a surprisingly immersive experience from a, a front-firing soundbar. Or just two speakers built in a TV using psychoacoustics, which I was, Indeed. Thinking, was actually <laughs> thought was really, really good. Which is what uh, Denon are using on the Heels Home Cinema, a bit of psychoacoustics going on there. Uh, and I have to say, it's quite effective. Um, you know, it, is, it is on the pricier side, but it's very much a, a soundbar that was aimed at sound quality. Uh, and if you're going to call your soundbar the home cinema, it bloody better deliver in that department. Otherwise, you're really setting yourself up for a fall. And it did. It sounded really good and really big, open immersive soundstage from a soundbar which was great um i really like that having said that the uh philips xs1 philips fidelio xs1 is a sound base and um gorgeous gorgeous design and really well made and lovely and um it just whether it's a coincidence or whether it was intended that way because they are actually separate because philips tv is tp vision and philips fidelio philips audio is part of gibson now but it just fitted underneath the <laughs> underneath the uh um, Philips TV that I was reviewing at the same time and that uh, looked really nice and uh, sounded great. I'm really pleased with that. I thought it was uh, a nice little um, little sound base that um, is, was well made and attractive to look at. I mean, aren't Plint, the, the sound bases are on slightly thin ice because of the change to how big tellers yes. have to have their stands yeah. now. That, but that's interesting because with the, with the Philips 8601, that was a good example. It had the wide stand with feet at either end. But as I say, there was just enough space underneath it to fit it in. Um, otherwise, it would have been yeah. You couldn't really use it with that kind of TV, and and that is something that I think is. It looks like I'm, we're seeing less sound bases, sound plinths, whatever, uh, and more sound bars because of that. And obviously, some manufacturers like Samsung, for example, are even curving their sound bars to match their curved panels. So I guess we keep coming back to this age-old question: you know, do you go the sound bar or do you go the full five point one, seven point one, full Atmos, seven point four point four? You know, do you go as far as that? I mean, I guess a lot of the blokes out there who listen, and I, I guess I'm being sexist here by saying that slightly, but um, I think uh, I'm on pretty firm ground. If somebody was to do research, it probably would be the fact that if it was a bloke's house and there wasn't any partner, they would have ceiling speakers and 7.1 and all the rest of it. But I think uh, if you've got a wife or a partner or kids and you have to share the living space, which all sounds like a disaster to me, um, but if you have it to, sh- <laughs> if you have to share the, the living space, then um, I guess the soundbar becomes a half decent compromise. I couldn't. I, I've got kittens now, as you know, and I could not have wires trailing down the around the back of the room. Now that the place would be destroyed. They're addicted to wires. Yeah, well, I mean, you could have wires trailing, or, or you could do a, a really nice job and, and actually lift the carpet and have it running under the carpet and that kind of thing. 
Well, I don't have carpet. Yeah. Sorry? I don't have carpet. Well, you just like being different. Well, no, well, you again, what, what if, you you do is, it, if well, you're possession of small children and animals, laminate flooring is your friend. If <laughs> someone spills Ribena on laminate flooring, the world just keeps on rotating. Well, it's well fine. What, what you do is put it down the side of the skirting boards then. It's, it, it's actually wiring for me, other than the visible stuff up to the speakers, which I can't be asked to channel in because I have to keep disconnecting it and attaching review speakers to. It's mo it's mostly invisible. But I, further to the, the children and animals comment, um, there is also, uh, an, it's, having nearly been dead, stereo is, is, a, is a bigger thing. So I know plenty of people that have a significant stereo audio system, multiple components there. But they actually just you run a soundbar under the telly for convenience. It's they, they, it works better than trying to loop audio feed into um, into a two-channel audio system, especially as a lot of televisions these days don't have an analog out. So you'd be looking at Ed, having to add decoding anyway. Ed, you're the only person I know that has a big stereo system like that. Well, yes, but believe it or not, there are there is more than just me. Um, okay, so they, there's, there's what maybe five or six of you. No, uh, it's a subset. Trust me. Steve, do you know anybody that just has a, a stereo system and then a sound bar? I don't know. <laughs> the people that I know tend to have uh, multi-channel you know, multi setups. Uh, but way. if you want to find them, uh, they'll be at Bristol at the end of the next month. <laughs> <laughs> In force. <laughs> okay, so, you know, I, I just hope that people who do go out and buy sound bars get the bug and then realise that there's more to it than just a sound bar and then they'll add in rear channels and then they'll... I don't, think, I don't think many will, honestly. Do you not? No. It's a, as, as we've alluded to, it's a real convenience product and it does the job. People buy one and that'll be it. Hmm. It's quite sad, really, when you look back at the home cinema market where it used to be, you know, you had 7-1 because your neighbour had 5-1. Yeah. Mm. Well, except it's never... It's We've had this conversation at least a dozen times over the years. Confronted with the public's unwillingness to stick multiple speakers in their lounge, the only answer has ever been to try and persuade them to put more speakers in their lounge. <laughs> you know, and we shouldn't be too surprised, especially when you then factor in television profiles and, and form factors reducing the space for speakers we shouldn't be in any way surprised when a, a, a sufficiently convincing alternative turns up to, to bridge the gap yeah yeah right ed and like i said right right the way back at the start of the podcast thank god i have a back cave for a cinema room because having speakers on the ceiling and and all around the room um there is no easy way to hide it otherwise other than designing the room in such a way like the AV Forums home cinema where it's all hidden behind material walls and then you have to have material walls in and you're not going to have that in a living room are you that's more a dedicated room so yeah it's it, it's hiding the speakers it's hiding the wiring it's making it look um decent in a livable space because the vast majority of people who have home cinema in any shape or form it's normally in a living room um i think because myself and steve and, and you to a certain extent ed have you know, dedicated rooms that we can, you know, go, go and squirrel away and watch films and all the rest and turn the lights off and have plenty of speakers all over the place and all the rest of it. Um, that, that's quite rare out there. There's not a lot of people have that flexibility. My wife is at pains to point out it's not a dedicated room. Um, it, it is still supposed to be our lounge. It just looks, <laughs> looks horrifying. <laughs> but needs must when the devil drives. So, uh, yes. I mean, that's one, one of the reasons why I'm so interested when we get hold of the review sample to have a look at this Arkham SR250. As, I mean, as a, you know, I, I will be very interested to see how I get on with just one amp doing the whole shebang. Uh, very, you know, it's a specialised proposition, but I will be very interested to see how that, how that functions in the context of how I've been using electronics up until now. Yep. Interesting stuff. Um, so, Ed, are you a collector or are you a user? Well, this, this um, to put a little context, this came about because, uh, against my better judgment, I was re-checking re values for home insurance purposes. And um, I, my record collection is it's generally undervalued anyway. Uh, it's the nature of the beast. But um, quite... Un, unbeknownst to me in, since the last time I checked the price of some some records that I own has gone well, it's gone bananas for want of a better word uh, two that's a couple of examples that spring out Block Party uh, their first album Silent Alarm I bought that album on a whim 
on a random day in London. I think I paid £14 for it. It's in good nick, so it's now apparently worth 70 to 75 quid. Um, and at much the same time, I bought an album by Placebo called Meds, not yeah, one of their finer on. efforts. Um, but I paid, again, about 14, 15 quid. That's worth 75. And this leaves me... Uh, it leaves me on the horns of a dilemma. I'm not, and I've stressed this in the past, a collector, so to speak. Uh, I buy records to listen to them. I've listened to both of these records on, on a couple of occasions. The Block Party, perhaps, more than the Placebo one. But in the circumstances, do you buy, Do you say, well, I'm a listener, so you sell these ones on and you use the money to buy more records that you will actually listen to on a much more regular basis? Or do you go, well, on the occasions I do want to listen to this thing, I'd probably still rather do it on vinyl. And, you know, there is an, uh, there is an, an indisputable element of joy in only something which is apparently quite rare. So do you hold on to it? And it did occur to me that this is not simply the case with I mean vinyl is perhaps the most extreme example, but there are undoubtedly unusual releases across well, certainly across Laserdisc, but to, to across DVD and Blu-ray and so on and so forth. You see, where I, don't, I don't see that market anymore, Ed. It used to be like that. It's not anymore. I don't I, I don't think it is. I think apart from maybe steelbook collectors, um I think in terms of Blu-ray and DVD, um I think things have caught up. It used to be that different regions had far better product than you would get in this country but I think we've discussed this in the past as well but I think we're at a stage now where apart from maybe some odd packaging changes which I've got to say we had a look around at Best Buy when we were over in Vegas recently and a lot of the Blu-ray packaging over there I really liked it because it, it was far nicer than the UK stuff but I think in terms of the discs are the same um, so you know they're only going to encode the disc and run it through the replicator ones. So the discs that we get in this country are the same as what you buy in the States. They have the FBI warnings on them and all the rest of it. But when you go back to the days of DVD, it was a little bit different because then you had different soundtracks. Um, so you, you had DTS at 1.5 megabits per second rather than, um, was it around about 400 kilobits yeah, per second? For, yeah, about that. For 380 Dolby, to 400 or yeah, so. Yeah, for it? Dolby Digital. So there was a difference in the soundtrack. So you went hunting for DTS stuff when, in the days of uh, DVD. And, you know, I did buy a lot of stuff from Japan before we... Um, we struck up a thing where, where we'd review stuff from Japan. So I think it was CD Japan that, that sent us stuff for review eventually. Um, because because the DVDs were so different and you got, um, I think it was, um, what was the one with the Astros? Armageddon. Yeah. I think that you could only get that in DTS in Japan. There was True Lies. Uh, you could get that in DTS uh, from Japan. I remember getting that in. There was a couple of others as well, which you could only get from Japan. And then there was stuff like the Black Hawk Down box, which I think was South American. I think you had to import it from South America to get that version, if I can remember correctly. So there was a market back then for these things, and you just had to look at the forum classifieds where um, you know these discs did go for, for pretty good money. I mean, I remember a Back to the Future set that came with uh, the number plate and all the rest of it on DVD. Um, there was one later on, on Blu-ray, which wasn't quite as nice. I mean, you're talking about a full-size American number plate not the little plastic thing that you get in the Blu-ray box tin thing. Um, so there was a market for it now. And I think the only thing that, that even approaches that now where people are buying from other regions is the steelbooks. Yeah. I don't think it exists, that market anymore. We might see it with 4K Blu-ray, but then... I was about to ask. I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting whether the nature of economies of scale means that it's going to be a one-size-fits-all policy or I, I whether think, some releases are going to be quite localised. No, I, th I think it, what you're going to see is that the discs that get released in the US are going to be exactly the same as they are in the UK. Um, they're only going to re replicate them once yeah. and they'll change the packaging for the UK with the BBFC logo on it. Like yeah, they do now the with they ditch regional coding was just because they want to keep the production costs as cheap as possible and yeah. just produce mm. one yeah. disc. Yeah. So in terms of collector, I don't think, I, I mean, I collected, I think I had about 2,000 DVDs in the end before I started selling them all off. And, and I did sell them all off. Uh, apart from the really rare collectors things that I wanted to keep hold of but they wouldn't be worth any money now I don't think anyway and laser discs well some people still collect laser discs but again the market's 
fallen out of that because of the quality. People just don't play them now. If they buy them, they buy them for the packaging and for the gatefold sleeves and and that kind of thing. They don't buy them for the content that's yeah. on them. So I think vinyl really is the last frontier when it comes to proper collectible values on things. Certainly in audio and yeah. video terms, yeah. Maybe um, a, I think some SACD does. Now that's a weird one because SACD values have gone bananas over the over the last sort of two years and um the ultimate the ultimate sort of combo is rare sacds and a specially modified first generation playstation 3 which is able which is they were the only ones that were sacd capable and they're capable of creating um dsd rips which you can then use in more well, more more modern equipment than just straight SACD players. But yes, the value of some of those has gone absolutely bananas. But it it's more in terms of if you're, I mean, let's just in a more hypothetical sense. If you're sitting on, f- say, five discs, which have a cumulative value of sort of 350 to 400 quid, and you quite like them, but it's not that exciting, would you hold on to them because you know that they're quite rare? Or would you be chopping them in and buying a, a larger number of discs that you actually wanted to, to spend more time listening to. I'd chop them in without a thought. Without a think, thought, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get your thinks and thoughts in the right? Thinks and thoughts. <laughs> yes, I'm no I'm no collector anymore of anything really. Uh, I just uh, I, convenience wins for me most of the time. The, the price for Ultra HD Blu-ray puts me off. Thirty quid's going to be too much for a one-time watch. I'm not a multiple watcher of things. Yeah. I'm not really interested in extras or any of that. So. Yeah, it's going to be a while before I buy anything. Although, for the first time in a long time, I've actually been um, out buying Blu-rays uh, because of what they are. Um, so Dolby Atmos stuff, I've been going searching for for Let's decent hope it delivers them. <laughs> <laughs> for decent Dolby Atmos stuff. Um, same with 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray. I mean, I bought my first disc out the Martian, so it should be shipping in March. Um, yeah, for the first time in a while, I'm actually interested in physical media again. I'm I'm really interested to see Ultra HD Blu-ray and just how that is going to develop because I think it's interesting. And having seen the quality of it now, um, especially the HDR side of things as well, which we we discussed two podcasts back, and um, that really did get get me genuinely excited again about this hobby. And I, and I think because we do this as a job. Um, and we're doing this day in day out. Sometimes you know you get yourself into a lull where it has to be something pretty special to get you interested. Am I right, Steve? Because we see so much of this stuff. Um, even though you've kept up your Blu-ray buying and all the rest, of it, it's you're not as prolific as you used to be, are you? Oh no, no, it's, it's, it's been cut back quite a bit. Um, partly because I've been going to the cinema more and therefore seeing films I would have probably only bought on spec out of curiosity. Partly because I, I do watch some stuff streaming now occasionally, well, when I can. Um, uh, because, you know, you see a film on Netflix or on Amazon and, and I think, oh, I haven't seen that, I'll check that out. So that's also reduced. So basically, I'm only buying on, I was only buying on Blu-ray stuff that I absolutely knew I wanted to own and keep. Either it's a director, I've got all of his stuff or, you know, it's a film I'm really interested in. I've actually now basically stopped buying Blu-rays as well to see how things pan out with Ultra HD um, 4K Blu-ray. So... You know, depending on what happens with that in terms of releases and announcements over the next couple of months will dictate, you know, for example, I would normally buy Spectre next month. But now I'm thinking, well, Sony going to release it on disc, maybe on Ultra HD Blu-ray, maybe they will. Um, so let's wait and see if there's any announcements on that before I buy the Blu-ray. Because what I, would, I don't want to do is end up buying it once on Blu-ray and then going and buying it again on Ultra HD, um, Ultra HD Blu-ray. Uh, the exception to that is The Martian. I have bought The Martian on Blu-ray because I wanted it in 3D and the Ultra HD Blu-ray release comes with a with a normal Blu-ray, but that's 2D. So this way, uh, a bit annoyingly, it's the only way to get it in both. I will have ordered, like you, the Ultra HD Blu-ray version as well, um, but uh, I wanted the 3D uh, version as well. So that's that's the exception to the rule. But on the whole, I'm going to wait now and see what happens. But as far as pricing goes, Mark, you know, I know you, you said 30 quid too much. I, I don't, we don't really know what's going to be in the UK yet, and it's quite a broad range of prices in the States, going from like $22 for some of the sort of more catalogue Lionsgate stuff, way up to $32. So what's that, dollars. $22, that's what, 18 quid, 17 pounds? Yeah, well, that's, that's realistic. I'd buy in at that. Oh, just, let, me just, let me just confirm that because I can just, yeah, Ender's Game. Ender's Game, okay, I'm not, actually, I've seen Ender's Game, so I actually thought it was quite good. I enjoyed it, Harrison Ford, can't go wrong. Uh, that's available on, on Amazon US, Ultra HD 4K Blu-ray, 
for twenty dollars and sixty nine p. So oh, roughly right. about if that was in the UK, that'd be about seventeen eighteen quid. That's not bad. Now, conversely, oh, okay. the same company, Lionsgate, their Blu-ray release, sorry, Ultra HD Blu-ray release of The Last Witch Hunter, a film I'm not particularly interested in, uh, that's $38.69. <laughs> now, that's a massive disparity in pricing from the same company, same studio, uh, of $18 difference between something that's a bit older and something that's quite recent. It's only just coming out now on Blu-ray. So uh, if you look at... Uh, um, Sony, they're offering the Smurfs 2 for $35.99. They can sell out their ass while they're at it. Um, whereas um, Salt or Chappie are only 32 It's quite why Smurfs 2 is more than some of the other discs. Beyond I think they're having a joke with it, aren't they? Uh, uh, um, <laughs> um, you made Spider-Man 2, $32.39. So, but looking at The Martian, which both Phil and I have, have ordered, that's $22.99. Sorry, $29.99. Um, and I think that's about the kind of price point that's... So it's about 20 quid, 21 pounds. Yeah. So I'd, you know, I'd buy in at that, I think, quite easily. You'd pay that kind of money, roughly, for a 3D Blu-ray as it is, yeah. you know, now, new. So. Now the, only, the only thing that we have to raise at this point, and it, it, it's something that, you know, it has been there in the background, I think we need to do a bit more research, because certainly the studios are, are keeping quiet about it at the moment, and that is a lot of these films that have been announced for 4K Blu-ray were actually finished at 2K for the cinema. Actually, and I can uh, I can tell you now because it's funny enough I was looking at it this morning. Um, the as far as I can tell, pretty much the only films listed for release so far that are actually genuinely 4K resolution and not finished at 2K for release are the Sony releases. Yeah, but but even then, the Sony releases, the special effects will will have been done at 2K, um, which means they're going to stand out. So stuff like possibly uh, they might have done some of them because like Spider Man, um, the Amazing Spider Man Two was shot on thirty five mil um, for some reason. Yeah, but um, yeah, but what were the special effects? Finished I don't know. I think they may have been finished I'll, at four K as well. Um, I think they really because there's because there's not many you know special effects either, shops yeah. that are actually finishing it at four K. A lot of them are finishing at two K, which brings into question. Even those are the only ones that are genuinely four K. I mean, other films were shot at four K or six K or thirty five mil. Some of them are shot on ARRI cameras, which are below 4K. Um, so they, they weren't even filmed in 4K. Um, so, you know, the ARRI Alexa, it, it's only a 2K camera. You know, if that was used to film something, then how do you get the 4K version of it on the Blu-ray, on the 4K Blu-ray? So I, 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 is material going to be upscaled? The studios need to start answering these questions because a lot of people are now starting to ask those questions and looking at IMDb and other sources and seeing what the films were finished at for the theatrical runs. And if they were filmed at 4K or 6K, is it a case of they're now being remastered for the Ultra HD Blu-ray at 4K resolution? Or are they going to be upscaled? Or if they are, is the special effects be being redone at 4K? Or are the special effects going to be at 2K? And, and is there going to be picture image issues mm. yes all, all interesting questions um, and until we actually get some hold of some discs we're never going to really know uh, but it is, you're actually right Phil There's, most of the films that have been announced today are, were finished in 2K uh, and I can't see them going back and redoing them all again in 4K and redoing the effects uh, it so there's a going to be a cost attached to that yeah, right? cost a fortune to do that yeah. what they might do is if it's uh, if it's filmed 4K um, special effects at 2K, it could be that any any shots with special effects is 2K upscaled, and the rest is 4K, mm. and it just could be that anything with special effects, and I would imagine you're going to notice the difference, or are you? Hence the reason why they're always making such a big fuss about HDR because they know a lot of the stuff they've got at the moment just isn't going to stand up in terms of resolution, I guess. So I mean, unlike DVD and Blu-ray, which were standards were were resolution wise, which was under where films were being finished. Most films are being finished at two K um, for their theatrical releases. So are the studios going to be going back and doing uh, like they do at the minute for seven or nine versions of a film for the home uh, release? Are they going to go back and do a home release that's four K, finished at four K? Um, are we going to see Hollywood changing and, and where in the past they have finished a film at, at 2K, they're now, with this new format, going to have to finish at 4K? And is that going to push the effects industry on to start finishing things at 4K? Can it even be done at the minute? I mean, 
is it being finished at 2k because that is a barrier that they've, they've reached and it's going to cost too much to to up that lots of lots of really quite interesting questions there surrounding mm. that subject yeah. Maybe so, I hope you're watching in hdr and you don't notice <laughs> well i'll tell you what'll be interesting is when they get hold of some older 65 mil movies no effects in, in them just you know proper you know, films without effect shots that were just shot on a, on a higher um larger um, film format and then um how they look when they're when they're transferred to stuff like ben Hur, ben Hur, or um you know lance of arabia for example which yeah. as mark pointed out last week is already available for streaming from netflix i'm assuming there's obviously a disc on the way there that would be really interesting and also i noticed um i think it's shout factory are doing some 4k blu-rays of some of the imax movies so again i saw one of the ones one of the ones that's um, being released is called rocky mountain express i saw a scene from that projected um at the laser, the the, um, the at the Empire Nesta Square with the laser projector, and that looked absolutely stunning. So that 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 kind of stuff could look really really good. Um, um, I mean, maybe that they'll become the demo discs of choice to show off the full potential of 4K resolution in the home. Well, maybe maybe even not as physical discs, but if the the 4K progression keeps going, you know, we we get through the the mainstream stuff. I'm looking forward to uh, to to grotty monster movies from the 50s and 60s making it into uh, into the new resolution. I just 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 looking forward to how the uh, special effects and props are going to hold up to well, the, uh, the uh the monster box set on Blu-ray. I mean, it was quite good. I mean, the the transfer on the Dracula, the original Dracula, it looks stunning. Yeah, considering that film is knocking on the door of nearly 100 years old now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing. I mean, you can actually see the sets moving. You know how flimsy things were. It, you can pick out, you know, the the painting in the background and that kind of thing. But it it just looks amazing. And like I keep saying, you know, I, I think we we get a bit snobbish nowadays when it comes to quality because I think we got so used to good quality content in Blu-ray and and and, and so on that you know is it a case of we're we're actually blind to what we've actually got at the minute that which is absolutely outstanding. I think that quite often when I'm watching Blu-rays, actually, I do sit there and think, you know, this looks really good. <laughs> maybe, I should, maybe I shouldn't worry so much about UHD Blu-ray. But I, I guess the point is, and this is what we've been talking about quite a lot since CES, is aside from the pure resolution factor, there are other areas where there can be improvements made. And, and dynamic range is definitely one of them. And also, obviously, yeah. 10-bit video reducing things like um, gradations. Um it's important as well. So there are other areas where we could, because you know, you, certainly you can on even a good Blu-ray occasion, you see things like there's bits of um, banding gradation from the um, yeah, totally. And, and of course, video. if if you like us watching it on big screens as well, yeah. you know, we're we're projecting the image. Um, yeah, it is more um, relevant when it comes to bit depth and so on that, that you want to get rid of the gradation and and stuff. But yeah, I, I'm really excited for it. But you know, thinking. And looking at the way the industry is at the minute, I think the first run at 4K Ultra HD Blu-rays will make me quite disappointed with the actual quality. Mm. I mean, hopefully they do release Spectre because I, that that film absolutely definitely was finished in 4K. I know that because um, they told me that when I was at uh, IMAX um, for, for the laser projection demonstration. That was finished in 4K. So there are there are, certainly are some films, and that again is a Sony picture. So maybe Sony have been a bit more forward-thinking here in terms of we're going to finish our stuff in 4k because we're thinking ahead to this not, not necessarily the, the disc format but thinking ahead to a 4k future and that maybe would make sense um so we'll be yeah, the, the, perhaps that's you know we'll, we will see uh different pricing reflecting that as well possibly the, the only other thing is and getting it back to the original subject which was collector or user um i i, I think with 4k ultra hd I, the same as the way i've played it with blu-ray as well very recently um and when i think back and i had over 2000 dvds you know splashed all that money on dvds which wasn't a great quality format it was far better than what we had in the past but you know you would expect that if you'd done that with with dvd why didn't you do it with blu-ray you know why have you not gone out and, and what that meant and as the quality's gotten better and so on but as the price has also kind of stayed around about the 15 pound to 20 pound mark it's got to the stage now where i just buy stuff that I want to see and that I'm going to watch more than once. Mm, yeah. I mean, I've got stuff I bought back in 1997 I still haven't actually watched. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> On DVD. Yeah. I think I can think of a couple of movies that I know I haven't watched and I've owned them for nearly 20 years. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
I don't think, even though it's going to be a great format and I, I hope it really does well, I can see myself picking and choosing 4K Ultra HD Blu-rays. I mean, when when I get my first player through, I am going to buy some tat. I can, yeah, I can those, 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 rules, yeah. Yeah, those are the rules because there's only going to be what's available. But I think as the format moves on, I'm going to be a bit more um, selective in what I choose. Yeah, if you want some recommendations for tat you can buy in the early days, I'd probably pick up Chappie. It's not a great film, but it should look good on, on disc. Spider-Man 2. Well, the thing is, Steve, I looked at all it and then thought, I'll, I'll get the Martian. <laughs> yeah. Next men Days of Future's Past, worth picking up maybe. Um, Life of Pi, although it's not in 3D, and of course that film was very much conceived for 3D. Um, Exodus, again, that was a 3D movie. Fantastic Four I might buy just as a laugh to see, because I saw it in the cinema and it's appalling, but it is quite fun watching reshoots against original shots because the hairs and stuff and, and will change from shot to shot. It's a bit of a car crash oh, now, now we're, now we're really getting an OCD yeah, territory Bye. here <laughs> hang on <laughs> that was like your Facebook page the other day I mean what, what was it you did you watched the whole X-Files but you also did it in chronological order with the standalone films well, I watched and stuff. X-Files from, from pilot episode to the last episode of season 9 but I inserted into into that running the films in their correct chronological order so <laughs> the first film is set between seasons 5 and 6 I watched it between seasons 5 and 6 and then the last film obviously it was after the last episode of the last season so that was at the very end Steve that's not something I would boast about certainly not in public as long as it's just fly by mate only two weeks until uh, till the new series starts oh, on Channel 5 God. oh hell I, I, I see that the um, the reviews that have come out so far are not very promising I haven't been looking at the reviews and I'm still going to watch it anyway so I don't really care okay fine uh, movie reviews coming next What's at the cinema, Steve? Uh, the, at the cinema this weekend, we had The Big Short, which I, the film I wanted to go and see but wasn't showing at my local cinema, much to my annoyance. Uh, that has just won the director's the, sorry, the Producers Guild Award, the PGA Award for Best Film, suddenly making it the frontrunner for Best Film at the Oscars. Before that, everyone thought The Revenant was going to be the front runner. It had the most nominations. But suddenly, out of nowhere, The Big Short has become the big new uh, favourite to win it. Um, I really want to see it, though. Uh, it looks well, I know what it's about. You know, it's about the uh, about a bunch of financial investors who basically shorted the banks prior to the crash of two thousand and eight. Um, it, it based upon a book, uh, so it's based on a true story, and it looks uh, really interesting, well made, great cast, and also quite funny in places. So I really want to see that definitely at some point. Either I'll watch it at the cinema if it ever does turn up, or I'll get the Blu-ray, or maybe even the Ultra HD Blu-ray. Who knows? Uh, Ride Along Two opened up at the weekend. Uh, that got three out of ten from Kamari and. Um, I gave Ride Along 5 out of 10. I think I was probably being generous. Um, she thought this was, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. Props First to her. I read the review and she was doing doing her utmost to find something positive yeah. to say. Um, you know, you can't you can't do too, too many too many films with that dreadfulness and maintain that positivity. But, uh, but yeah, saw, she was desperately trying to find something worth nice to say about it. But there isn't much. But as, yeah, as we've we, learned on, on Mythbusters, which is sadly coming to the end of its run, uh, you can actually polish a turd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just not in this case. Fossilised turd and then polish that. Ride Along 2, yeah, only exists because Ride Along, much to everyone's surprise, made quite a bit of money um, and it looks dreadful, so don't bother with that. And Our Brand is Crisis, it's a film about um, political spin with Sandra Bullock and Billy Bob Thornton. Um, that looks okay. I think Sandra Bullock's a really good comedian. I think she's, she's actually done some really good comedies and when she's given good material, she can be great. Um, this apparently is a bit patchy, so some bit's quite good, some bit's not so much. Um uh, and opening this Friday, we have the 33, which is about the miners that were trapped uh, in that mine in Chile, um, uh, which uh, Sharuna has already reviewed because she saw an advanced screening last week. Uh, and it, it's, I think she gave it six out of ten. So it, you know, it, it's okay. It's workable. It tells a story. It tries to give you this perspective of what it was like for them trapped in the mine, also for their families and for the people that are trying to get them out. But I think it probably wasn't quite as... Um, is involving was emotional as she would have hoped there's also spotlight which is about was, again there's a lot of true, a lot of uh, films based on real events at the moment this is uh based on a, um, a newspaper investigation into um child molestation in the catholic church that apparently is a really good film i saw the trailer it looked very good really strong cast i'm quite keen to see this at the weekend if, if it plays at my local cinema and also um 13 hours the secret soldiers of benghazi which is the new michael bay film um 
And apparently, much to everyone's surprise, it's actually quite good. Uh, and Bay reigns in a bit this time and tries to stick with realism. And so there's no giant robots, um, no <laughs> asteroids, no Bruce Willis. I bet, there's st- I bet there's still some low angle shots. Uh, apparently, you know, he doesn't do any of that. It's not, no? None of that 360 stuff, none of that rubbish. Um, which, don't get me wrong, I love it in the, in the right context. But this, apparently, he tries to play it relatively straight, okay. tell the story. Um, and it apparently is quite good. So, again, if, if I can't see Spotlight, I might go and see that instead. Okay, uh, that's why they give you those those free passes, isn't it? Your cinema because they never show any. I know. Yes, no point having free passes if you can't go. If you want to go and see the damn play. Yeah, uh, who is it again? Cineworld. Cineworld. Oh. How many screens yeah. has it got? Six. You think with no, sorry, seven. It's got seven screens. You think with seven screens they could find one screen to show a current Oscar contender, <laughs> but no. And it's like it's a film with Brad Pitt, Ryan Gosling. Uh, Christian Bale and Steve Carell in it so it's got a massive cast you know but no anyway anyway moving on to Blu-rays we, we mentioned it last week Bad Boys 2 is out uh, Bad Boys 1 and 2 on, on the same disc I went to Amazon and it was twenty one ninety nine. I thought as much as I love Bad Boys I'm not paying 22 quid ah, well, for, for the privilege but uh, I just went and checked today and it's now available for £11 pounds. Yeah, yeah, so, so a massive uh, price drop. It will be getting purchased. <laughs> well, or if you want to, you can buy Bad Boys 2 on its own in a um, uh, steelbook for nineteen ninety nine. No, I'll stick for 11 quid and get Bad Boys 1 and 2. Actually, no, I think, sorry, forty ninety nine for the steelbook. But uh, yeah, you might as well get both I, of them. You know, I know there's collectors out there that really like the steelbooks and all the rest. I don't get it. I, I just I mean, do I not get it. Can't go wrong with Bad Boys 2. Yeah, well, we discussed it last week, so we're not going to do it again this week. All uh, right, so Blu-ray releases next week. Any Atmos discs that I need to pick up? Uh, Sicario is in Atmos, yes. And Sicario is also a very good film. Uh, well worth recommending. No, was, no, was it, it finished at 4K? <laughs> it's one of the films you can order in 4K. Yeah, uh, but that, that's, trade, I, know, right. well, I don't know, actually. It's No, actually, you know what? It's, um, well, there's not really much in the way of effect work in it. It's, 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 you know, it's more of a drama with about um, drug smuggling and, and the cartels in, in Mexico. So it might be... Uh, Good score. Okay. Um, one of the tracks from it popped up on my Spotify weekly playlist this morning and I listened to that and I listened to some of the rest of it and I was, yeah, it was quite taken. Yeah, so that. it was finished at 4K. I've just looked it up on IMDb. So it was finished, um, yep, 4K. Mm, okay, well, yes, that I'd recommend. I thought it was a really good film. Uh, good cast, really interesting story, very powerful, um, really tense, and um, yeah, and, and a great soundtrack too. So definitely worth getting. Um, the Walk comes out next week. That's uh, that was finished in two K. I can vouch for that because I've seen it projected in laser, and I could see that it was a low resolution in four K. Obviously, if you're going to buy that, buy the three D disc because that's what it was designed for. It's you know you want to you probably don't want to watch this film, but if, unless you, if you're not don't mind height so much. Um, Watching it in 3D is quite an experience. There's also the Maze Runner, the Scorch Trials, which is another one of those young adult series, which I wouldn't bother with. But uh, certainly the Walking Did, did Sicario, you say the Scorch Trials or the Scorch Trousers? The Scorch Trousers, yeah. Scorch That's the Nick Park version. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. And uh, a little bit of news about Star Wars Episode Eight. The release date has been moved from May, which is the traditional Star Wars release date is, is May, uh, been moved to December. Um on the back of how well The Force Awakens did at the box office. So we've got more or less the final figures in. So how did it do? It's it's made $840 million in the US and about $1.9 billion so far worldwide. So it's number one in the US of all time. It beat $760 million, which was Avatar's record. Uh, however, uh, it probably well, it definitely won't be Avatar worldwide because that's made 2.7 billion it might just sneak past Titanic at 2.2 but at the moment it's just under 2 it'll definitely go above 2 billion so it'll become the third film ever to make 2 billion worldwide now these are box office only takings that don't include DVD sales and that kind of thing no this is purely uh, worldwide box office yeah yeah okay um and I think the reason, I mean, the reason they've moved Star Wars Episode Eight to December is partly because clearly this has worked out extremely well for Episode Seven. Uh, also, I've read that uh, Avatar Two has been delayed. It was supposed to come out in December 2017, but it isn't going to be now. Um, which means, obviously, Disney thought, "Aha, let's a great opportunity for us to make for take full advantage of that open space again for us." Uh, um, and it ties in well because obviously we've got um, Rogue One coming out this December and Chris- Christmas for selling toys. Yeah, quite. And then episode eight, the following December, and then the Han Solo movie, the one after that, and then episode nine, the one after that. So basically, we can have a Star Wars movie every Christmas for the next four years, which is at least the next four years, which is great. Also, I have to be honest, I think they only start shooting this month. So the idea of getting the film shot and the effects finished and everything done 
by next May, which is what, uh, 15, 16 months? It's cutting that it quite seems, tight. That yeah. seems a bit tight for a major effects film. Uh, so I, I don't think they'd have made a May release anyway. I mean, they were trying to make the May release because obviously it's the 40th anniversary of Star Wars coming out, the original Star Wars coming out, and that was, that was the point of it. But it, se- it seems to make more sense to wait till December. Maybe if they did it all stop motion with models. <laughs> no CGI at all. Let's go back. They're going to go really old school on this. <laughs> but it, there, there, was a, there was an interesting article. I think I read it on uh, StarWars.com. But um, you know, there was all this fuss made about practical sets and models and all the rest of it. But it was st- there was still a massive amount of CG work. Yeah, you see the effects really did for the Academy. Yeah, yeah. There's tons and tons of it in there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, although they did do quite a lot of, of practical effects as well. Um, I think a bit more than they needed to sometimes. But uh, yeah, there was a load of, of um, visual effects. Let's hope. Do you think that was finished at 2K? <laughs> Force Awakens probably was, yeah. Um, yeah. Although it was shot in 35 mil, so um, it's just the effects. You know, were the effects done at, at, at 2K? That's the that's the main thing. I mean, this is going to be the thing going forward. You know, is it going to change the industry? Well, I think it, it will with a new format and things moving to 4K. And the fact that, you know, if you go to the shop now, uh, and uh, I was in Curry's at the weekend, but I was in buying a Hoover, not a TV. <laughs> <laughs> but but I did go and have a walk past the TV section like like you do and and so on and um, couldn't see any 1080p TVs. No, I don't. You have to go to a supermarket hard. now or Argos to see anything like that. Which yeah. you know, um, we've seen this last year. I think uh, a lot of the manufacturers it was like a sixty forty or seventy thirty split. I mean, this year it's ninety ten split mm. basically. If the manufacturer has released any 1080p TVs. Yeah, I mean they're gonna. Yeah, if you're going, if you're looking at very small screen, less than forty inches, you might still be able to get ten eighty p. But once you go above forty inches, it's going to be ultra HD all the way, isn't it? Yeah. So if that's the way everything's moving, then I guess you know you're going to have to see the effects now being done at four K, things being finished at four K, which is great yeah. for for the likes of Red because you know their cameras shoot at six K. Um, the Ari Alexa, like I say, is a two K. There is another. Uh, new There's the camera. what? The Revenant was shot on the Ari Alexa six six point five. Yeah, the six, sixty five, sixty five, yeah, which is six, six and a half thousand. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. So um, so yeah, so that's moving in the right direction now. You know, big films like that being shot um, higher resolution as well, because this is the thing. You know, we moved from thirty five mil, which was four K and above in terms of resolution. To digital, where a lot of the digital cameras, the early ones anyway, as George Lucas proved, were like 1080, 2K. Um, the Ari Alexa, like I say, it was a 2.7K. Um, the other Ari camera, which I can't remember the name of off the top of my head, but it was 3.7K. Um, and it's only now that you're now getting the Reds and, and others that are well over that at 6K, 6.5K, and so on. So interesting to see how that's moving, the industry wide moving. Um, Still, not a lot of production stuff at Rec Twenty Twenty, like the ultra wide color space. So I, just I think that, that's where we're going to see things. If you're the cinema industry, you need to compete with people having all this stuff at home now. Yeah, you need to start doing shooting in four K or higher than four K resolution if you can. Uh, finishing the films at four K and going for a wider color space, and obviously you've got twelve bit as well. So you know you've got some kind of differentiation between the cinema and the home because yeah. at the moment yeah. we're we're actually reaching a point. I think you said it last week for where we're actually getting more at home now almost. Than you are at the cinema, yeah. in some respects, in many respects. So, yeah, so it's it's an interesting time. Um, I think that ultra wide color space we'll never see, but things getting wider. I mean, even just looking at DCI stuff, you know, the the difference between DCI and seven hundred nine is fairly spectacular. So I think we're on a, a winner this year. I I can't wait to get the kit in, to be honest. <laughs> Mm. And it's been a while since, like, like I say. I mean, if you do this as often as we we do, uh, you get quite jaded because there's there's nothing really for the last few years that I've, that's really stood out. Is that? I mean, laser projection maybe, but other than that, there's nothing really that got that got the blood going and, and got us excited again. But I think CES this year really did push us along, and and you know, with the content now coming, with the the hardware now coming along. HDR looking like it's it's a settled format now. It's going to be HDR10 with Dolby Vision added on top. It's looking really really good. And, and for the first time in a long time, I'm thinking, well, no, Steve's not getting that for review. I'm going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> and and Mark's definitely not getting it. Yeah. <laughs> well down the food chain now, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is definitely exciting this year. I'm I'm really looking forward to. I'm what excited you, for you both. I'm looking forward to what you let me review. <laughs> Yeah, you're quite welcome to the media boxes, Mark. We'll leave that to you. Thanks. 
So um, I guess, again, we've outstayed our welcome this week, but uh, that is the podcast. My thanks to Steve Withers. I think we just broke the record for the number of gunfights in one week. Ed Selly. They were dead before we ran over them. And Mark Hutchkinson. I've got my rights. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, Bookmark AV Forums, the latest reviews, news and video. Uh, of course, um, I didn't keep my promise. I was going to read out the, uh, the iTunes five stars. We forgot to go and look. I, I do apologise but if you want to leave us a five star rating uh, do that on iTunes we'll read you out next week and I'll hold Steve to that so if we forget it's his fault so that's it for the show I'm Phil Hunt thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next Wednesday